it's the Russians who are pumping out the extreme rightists into Donbass, telling many of them, saying, you know, if you go, all your sins are forgiven. But if you don't, there is a nice penal colony for, for you somewhere in Siberia. Quite a few of these groups on the far right, European far right especially, are simply in Moscow's pocket. You know, Azov would never be Azov had it not been for the OK from the Ukrainian state. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Emble, editorial director at MWI, and this episode is a special one. It's really a joint effort between MWI and CTC, the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. CTC has recently been working really hard to study the subject of foreign fighters in Ukraine, and specifically the extent of any presence of extremists among those foreign fighters. One of the experts whose analysis has been a really important part of CTC's work on the subject is Kasper Rekowick. I had the chance to speak to him, and our conversation explored a range of really important questions. We talked about whether the war has attracted extremists to Ukraine, Moscow's leveraging of Russian extremists in the war, and of course, the well-known Azov Regiment. It is a fascinating discussion, but before we get to it, just a few quick things. First, a sincere thank you to the Combating Terrorism Center and the entire team there. I highly recommend checking out their website, ctc.westpoint.edu, and especially the CTC Sentinel. It is a phenomenal resource, and they put out a new issue every month. Second, hopefully you're already following MWI on social media, but if not, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Casper Rekowitz. Casper, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Thank you for having me. So this episode is sort of a uh, a joint production with another organization based at West Point, the Combating Terrorism Center. Many of our listeners, I'm sure, will be uh, familiar with CTC. Uh, this kind of this discussion that we're going to have kind of comes on the back of some work that CTC did that you were involved with on uh, the subject of extremism among the ranks of foreign fighters in the uh, ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Before we get into that, uh, you know, listeners will have heard a little bit about you in the introduction to this episode, uh, but you are a postdoctoral fellow, I believe, at CREX, the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. I wonder if just to sort of introduce yourself and uh, and your expertise, if you can kind of describe some of the subjects of your work and, and the work of CREX. Sure. Thank you for that. Um, essentially, my research is concentrated on the foreign fighters, foreign volunteers who went to fight in Ukraine from 2014 onwards. Because I think this is, you know, the important bit is that basically it takes, it's not, it has not started this year. It's been going on for quite some time. I've been looking at them for like seven, eight years now. Uh, originally, I could say that I come from the field of terrorism studies. Uh, but seven, eight years ago, one event kind of, you know, transformed my life when I saw a bunch of French foreign fighters who were in Donetsk fighting on the side of the so-called separatists, essentially on the Russian side. And I remember literally falling off my chair, thinking that these are also foreign fighters. It's not just ISIS people. It's not just people who went to, you know, volunteered there. Simultaneously, you had a, another mobilization for a completely different conflict. So I kind of shifted from the outright terrorism studies into the field of foreign fighters. And as it turned out, the 2014 bunch, quite a few of them were either brown, as I call it in my forthcoming book, meaning from the far right, or, you know, red, because they were coming from, from the far left. And essentially, this brought me onto the field of, you know, far right research. And, you know, eventually, uh, last year I joined, I joined CREX, which is the Center for, the, for Research on Extremism, which is at the University of Oslo, found, founded after a seminal event in the history of terrorism and, you know, far right militancy, 2011 and the Utoya massacre. Uh, in, in Norway, you know, the center wouldn't be founded had it not been for this. So we, we you know, we really have to be honest for uh, about this. And Utoya is obviously an important place for CREX in its history and its founding myth in a way, if you could put it this way. And at the same time, I'm also affiliated with the center uh, with Counter Extremism Project, which is based in the United United States. So I kind of wear a hat and a half, if you, if you like. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I've started my shift quite some time ago towards towards this, but I originally came from a completely different field, terrorism studies. My PhD was on the factions of the Irish Republican Army. Then I was looking, I was a 
counterterrorism analyst or terrorism analyst at the Polish Institute of International Affairs in Warsaw, which is like a, the pri- you know the primary think tank, go-to think tank in this part of Europe. And then eventually I was shifting to the right, if you like, and then and looking at that while well, looking at these individuals. Uh, that's fascinating. And I think we'll actually circle back to that uh, later on in the conversation and talk about, you know, the, the extent to which there are sort of lessons that are can be applied from one particular terrorist group or extremism case to another, um, because, you know, there's obviously many examples. And I think that we're seeing a shift in the analytical community, certainly from a single paradigm that was oriented mostly on the Middle East and a particular brand of extremism to something fundamentally different right now. And whether or not there are opportunities or pitfalls uh, in sort of exporting lessons learned from from one example Mm -hmm. to another. Uh, we are going to talk mostly, though, today about uh, the ongoing war, which kicked off in in February. But I'm really glad that you mentioned that, uh, like anything, you know, over the past five months, it's really difficult to understand a particular subject uh, with respect to this ongoing war in Ukraine without really understanding it within the context of the past almost decade, uh, and in some cases, even even longer before that. If we kind of go back to 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, they began supporting militarily the separatists in the Donbass region in uh, in eastern Ukraine. Was that an event that triggered, um, you know, was that a sort of a triggering event that extra- that attracted extremists, far right extremists from uh, elsewhere around around Europe, particularly? Maybe not initially. I would say, you know, it's it's really Russia invented. In a way, those separatists. So that, that that's another point. But I would say you have a conflict in a part of Europe that was mostly I don't want to say neglected, but but underappreciated in a way. And the fact that it's out there and that it is happening basically gave people of that ideological flavor a chance to flaunt themselves as you know the go-to guys in a way you know this for for years uh a ukrainian or a russian far-right person would be seen as the you know untermenschen so the kind of subhuman by western european far-right for years and suddenly because they were fighting in a war and they had you know ak-47s tanks artillery and stuff like that they were you know they were something you know they could always turn around and say Oh, I'm fighting in a war. What is it that you're doing, really? You know, how how is your militancy today? Uh, suddenly, this was their ticket to right. So for this reason, you know, and it was the far right of the extremists of you know Russia and Ukraine, as one of them told me that they always looked up to their Western brethren. They were checking out what they're wearing, what they're listening to, you know, where they're going. Suddenly, you know, they were the ones sought by the. Westerners, and you know, you have to understand that, and I can fully say it because I'm a Central Eastern European. We do have a chip on the shoulder vis-à-vis the West, like you know, whatever you want to, you know, whatever way you want to spin it. And suddenly, being appreciated, being actually on, you know, front page news, well, that's new. That's new. And imagine that in a community of you know far-right people, uh, the underdogs, the perennial underdogs, and suddenly. They can fight in a war and I can make a name for myself. This is like, you know, it's it's a bit of a wild, wild west analogy. I had nothing and suddenly there is a new terrain for me and I can do something. And some of them did. And so what did that sort of, I guess, support or what did that, what did that actually look like? Did it involve, um, you know, people with extremist backgrounds from around Europe traveling there, or was it material support? And then, uh, you know, I guess the sort of follow-on question to that was, you know, this was a conflict that was being fought between initially volunteers, you know, the volunteer battalions mm-hmm. in early 2014 on one side and the, as you said, the so-called separatists on the other, exactly, on on the other side. And then increasingly you saw state involvement on both sides um, sort of taking shape. How did... Uh, particularly, you know, far-right groups fit into that kind of ecosystem? It's a fantastic question because I think we, we tend to analyze the far-right groups from this region through the Western lenses and then thinking of them as independent actors that are, you know, large, they mobilize a lot of people, therefore they must be dangerous. Whereas these actors uh, on both sides are quite often mobilized along this, the lines of the state, the state you know, turns the tap 
and something happens there are oligarchs who are you know you know who are financing them and there's a lot of of activity which has nothing to do with politics or far-right mobilization there's a lot of activity which is kind of you know commercial if you like fuggish that you are actually running a protection racket and it starts funnily enough on the russian side you know it's the russians who are pumping out the extreme rightists into donbass telling many of them saying you know if you go all your sins are forgiven but if you don't there is a nice penal colony for for you somewhere in siberia and they're pumping them out you know this is the cannon fodder for the so-called separatists inverted commas they're part of the cannon fodder there, there are many others but you know the far right is one of the elements you know putin's regime has this long history of mobilizing the far right for its uses first you mobilize them to be beat up the liberals and once the liber liberals are beaten you start beating up the nazis by you know by yourself and of course the nazis then are kind of like dumbfounded of how come you know we've helped you so much and now you're turning out you know against us so this is the russian story they are the instigators finally you know it's not ukraine then on the ukrainian side you have this process in which essentially there is street fighting in kiev around uh, the euromaidan so essentially this big you know tahrir square style of a, you know encampment in the middle of kiev in which people you know congregate and they basically this is where they demand change for ukraine and went back in late 2020 2013 and the ukrainian state makes the mistake of actually beating them using riot police to intimidate them and then you have all sorts of groups coming out to defend uh the encampment if you like you know the tent city and some of these groups or quite a few of them are actually coming from the nationalist right you know this is the famous right sector azov is a spin-off in a way of the of the right sector there is a community there that wants to fight but this community wants to fight not because it is pro-european you know euromaidan they don't care about that they hate the ukrainian government of 2013. they think it's oligarchic that it's pro-russian that it's selling country, the country down the drain and they see it as a perfect opportunity to actually fight that very that very regime you have these two impulses coming from two different sides but don't forget the russian one it's really you know the Russian one is artificially created. It's it's kind of like you know, whereas the Ukrainian one is almost natural that you have this milieu, which does not feel well in pre-Euromaidan Ukraine, and then sees the Euromaidan as a chance to hit back at the political reality. And we're still dealing with the aftermath of this attempt to hit back. I'm glad you brought up Azov, which I think you know it's pretty obvious that we're going to talk about them a fair amount in this conversation. But I would also you brought up right sector, Pravi sector, because you know going back to late 2013 and into 2014, there's a there's a fascinating and complex origin story there that's I think really important to understand. You know, it I think it helps for sort of a simplified narrative to think of right sector being well, you know, sector denotes some sort of like cohesive group and right meaning and it's not. sort of far right, but it's it's not this. It's that you know if if anybody who's been to Kiev and has been to Maidan with somebody who who was there at the time and can explain to you how it was all working, probably sector was one of many. Right sector was one mm -hmm. of many uh, mm -hmm. of these sort of organizations that said basically, hey, you're going to hold the line right here. And then when Russia senses an opportunity because Yanukovych flees and suddenly there's sort of this power exactly. vacuum in the country and they start you know messing around in the Donbass and Crimea and what have you, uh, not to not to simplify that narrative, but once that happened, there's effectively no command and control structure to send the military. And so all of these organizational, like this sort of organizational structure that had been on Maidan goes east with whatever weapons they can find, with whatever helmets they can find, with whatever vehicles they can find. And the more cohesive organizations from Maidan, from that square, are the ones that are going to form the most efficient and cohesive fight. Volunteer battalions, on. yes. And yes. Pravi Sector was was one of these. Can you kind of describe, you know, would it have been would it have been appropriate to label the organization as a far right organization at this point? Or was it you know, did it have far right influences? Uh, but there were also people who were, you know, just going to volunteer and this was an effective fighting force so that they joined it. And the reason I ask that is because I think this is, you know, this is important as we try to, you know, define mm -hmm. what an organization like Azov is going forward. I think, you know, the, the, the nationalist groups that were there and some of them or most of them morphed into volunteer battalions that which fought then in the war, I would probably call them more as anti-systemic than far right you know far right is a is a 
well, largely Anglo-Saxon uh, label, so to sure. speak. And I'm not sure you can you can actually like 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 put it on Ukraine in, in 2020, 2013. You know, far right here and there is is a different thing. But these guys are mostly anti-systemic. They come together. Uh, they come together, uh, and right sector basically tries to be a bit of an umbrella. It kind of you know tries to vacuum clean all the nationalists. They call themselves nationalists from all around Ukraine, although they do not agree on all the things. And uh, it immediately uh, has, you know, command and control problems, like from the get-go. That is, that's a funny one, that if you're supposedly running a far-right organization, which is, you know, supposedly hierarchical and autocratic, yet immediately there are these command and control uh, issues. And the funny thing is that some of them are actually quite uh, proud of this. They actually see that this is a you know quintessentially Ukrainian feature, Cossack feature, that they are independent-minded, that they you know quarrel, they're not afraid to to actually uh, express opinions and stuff. And, and essentially, this is how Azov, in a way, spins off. Once it sees that right sector is loud, colorful, but also messy, and there are lots of internal problems. Whereas Azov styles itself. As this kind of you know unitary, uh, you know really hierarchical, uh, almost threatening in a way, uh, entity that wants to and I'm you know I'll put it in inverted commas kick ass, and wants to use this opportunity to do so. Whereas the right sector with its colorfulness and its chaos, and its maybe lack of ideological purity as well, because if you actually read some of the program of the right sector, it's literally going to hit you that some elements there have nothing to do with far-rightism or nationalism, to be honest with you, uh, whereas Azov's completely different. Plus, you know, right sector is seen as the kind of inheritor of the Ukrainian nationalist original tradition, going back to the 1930s, 1920s, with, with organization of Ukrainian nationalists and Stepan Bandera, you know, all these, all these names, mythical names. Well, Azov won't say no to this, but Azov is from Kharkiv, which is in east of Ukraine. Funnily enough, Azov speaks Russian as its first language, and that certainly is not the first language of the some of the core activists of, of the right sector. Um, they are slightly different, you know, they have slightly different outlooks, you know, right sector tries to be quintessentially Ukrainian, Azov tries to be quintessentially uh, bigger and broader, more transnational, if you like, but not essentially towards the West. You know, remember that if they're from Kharkiv and they speak Russian, their friends will be in Russia and Belarus, the first friends that they've got in the world. It's not Americans, it's not Brits. It's somebody who's close, someone who listens to the same music, goes to the same places, has the same clothes, the same problems, the same social issues and stuff like that. So in a way, Azov is like, you know, like more eastward, if you like, whereas the right sector is the classic, more Ukrainian nationalism with, with, with the western part of Ukraine playing the role of the core of the country. Whereas traditionally, let's be honest, the core of the country is not in western Ukraine, but somewhere by the river Dnieper, southeast, you know, towards, towards the south and towards the east of the, of, the, of, of the country. So these kind of things mix together and Maidan, as you said, provides space for them to kind of either come together and then drift apart. And at once the fighting goes eastwards, well, this is the moment for the big test. You know, who actually has the structure, who has the wits, who has the logistics, and how determined you are to actually deploy to the front and where will you fight. And this is where the funny things start. Because people see these groups and these movements as, you know, really uh, bottom-up creations you know, kind of like they reflect the strength of the far-right sentiment in Ukraine. But that's not true. You know, Azov would never be Azov had it not been for the okay from the Ukrainian state, had it not been for the money that some of the oligarchs were in essentially, you know, initially paying. You know, right sector wouldn't be right sector had it not been for the fact that the Ukrainian state basically owned them as a deniable asset on the front line. Uh, you know, right sector would always turn around and say, oh, we're not officially under the command of the state. Yeah, sure, but you're on the front line and the Ukrainian military units that are stationed next to you know of your existence there. And they really want you to be there because you can be the deniable asset. 
this is how it worked between 2014 and 2022 for these groups. So do not forget that these things are not natural totally, that there is some, 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 some you know, shady money, that there is some, you know, governmental decision, that they, they can be switched on and off uh, more easily. That's why I'm sometimes perplexed, perplexed why some of my, you know, Western colleagues, they think of them as, you know, natural emanations of a political movement or political feeling in the country. And partly they are, but partly they're not. And we cannot forget that, you know, it, it just complicates matters, you know, it does, but Ukraine is a complicated place. Can you, you know, can you go into a little more detail about, about that? I guess, I guess I'm curious about the process by which as I've split from right sector and- Or emerged, and, emerged from right sector. Emerged from, like, yes, way, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a much better way no, of putting we, it. You mentioned that, you know, at this point, at least, you couldn't necessarily describe right sector, monolithically anyway, as a far right organization. Um, as Azov is founded, you know, how much of that, uh, how much of its sort of origins were driven by battlefield dynamics? There's, you know, there's now fighting going on and, and they're involved in it, right? Or, you know, analytically speaking, as we really try to wrap our heads around, you know, what this group is, is it significant that Azov seems to be characterized by a stronger degree of ideological consistency? Sure, sure. I think, you know, they were much more consistent and I think much more insistent on that uh, as far as they were concerned and the rank and file were concerned. And, you know, right sector was, was kind of coming together in this, in, in this way, but they were nationalist. And of course, nationalist by our standards of, you know, political science of the West, it is far right. So I would, I would say they were. And Azov was just more... I would say determined to fight immediately, go to the front and fight, and they were deployed. They were actually, you know, it's it's a, it's a hardly known fact that they were probably the ones who stood behind the first casualties of the pro-Russian activists in Ukraine, because you know there was this attempt to stage a Russian spring in Kharkiv, and the little black men, as they called themselves, so the kind of proto-Azov, were deployed mm -hmm. to Kharkiv, where the some of the activists of the Russian spring are killed. So they are, this is how determined they are. You know, they really, they're fighting on their home terrain. They're stopping Russian Spring in Kharkiv, which is a city with a huge population of Russian speakers. They're not essentially Russians. The Russians claim they're Russian, but they're not. But technically or theoretically, you could, you know, stage something there along the lines of Donetsk or Luhansk. In a way, you could try if you, if you, if you support it and you play it, play your cards right. But they certainly help prevent this scenario from from happening. And yes, they have the ideology. Uh, the you know they emerge from a group which was you know ideologically extreme, the Patriot of Ukraine, uh, which was a small group of school uh, operating in Kharkiv uh, of, of of you know extreme nationalists, fagish. Let's be honest, you know street activists whose members spent a lot of time fighting, I don't know, Indian students in Kharkiv and things like that. You know, there, there are actually publications on that where they admit that. And suddenly, you know, the Maidan and the post-Maidan situation gives them a chance to prove themselves as something bigger. And they're probably more focused on making it happen. You know, they're a smaller group, they're more determined, and they immediately start to build up the, uh, the, the myth around themselves. I think there is some kind of... You know, there must be some good PR men there. It's probably men because they really, from the get-go, they, they style themselves as something bigger than they really are. And I mean, many other volunteer battalions lack that focus. They lack that PR orientation. They, li they lack that, you know, marketing element, if you like. And they do it. You know, they, they, you know, they, they provide the goods on the front lines, but they also build up this, this machinery of, of, of being simply good PR specialists. And I think Azov starts really early with the little black man. Then they have the battalion. Then they fight for Mariupol in 2014 for the first time. Some people say it wasn't such a big fight. Other people say it was a big fight. Whatever it was, they use this and they ride on this a lot. They immediately transform themselves into a unit which is technically, no, not technically, it's a unit. It's, it's a you know unit run by the state, the National Guard. And they don't say it's a betrayal, like, you know, right sector would say. They say, hey, it's a new platform for us. We are now endorsed by the state. No group like us has ever been endorsed like that in the history of Ukraine. So, you know, they really go places in this sense. But it's not, please remember, a completely bottom-up 
process. It's a process that is being helped, that is being assisted, that is being watched by the state, which is basically looking at these volunteer battalions and saying, okay, who's good? Who's good? Who's a good fighter? Like, you know, whom can we trust in this sense? Oh, these guys are okay. You know, I don't care about their swastikas or whatever. We're just going to take them. That They benefit from that as well. So we've been talking about 2014. We're going to fast forward uh, in in a minute to this year, 20, 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the interim, one of the you you kind of alluded to one of the defining processes, especially early after 2014, which was the state's incorporation of these volunteer units, volunteer battalions, into in some cases Ministry of Defense, uh, and in other cases the Ministry of the Interior under the National Guard. So as that goes from being this. You know, volunteer organization that, sure, with some some sort of support uh, from oligarchs and from from sort of the the uh, you know support from from the powers that be in the Ukrainian sure. state, but not official support necessarily to becoming a full fledged uniform wearing member of the Ukrainian state security forces. Exactly. What challenges did that? you know, did that pose? Because, because you know, this is not a new conversation. It wasn't only this year when people realized, Hey, this group really seems to like swastikas or other, mm-hmm. you know, let's say problematic iconography. There's, there's a clearly discernible far right ideology that underpins this group. So as the Ukrainian state begins to integrate volunteer battalions into the armed forces, you know, what challenges did that pose when it, when it came specifically to doing so with Azov? You know, different challenges than the ones we fought would be because you know from the west the challenge is oh you have a far right unit in your armed forces essentially you have an ideological unit that would be the line for ukraine ukrainians wouldn't see it that way you know i've had these conversations and they were you know rolling their eyes and like you know exasperated with this but they saw the issue they saw the issue somewhere else that some of the leaders of volunteer battalions had political ambitions and someone something like azov which was very focused and focused and very determined and very ideological was the prime suspect, but not just this one. I think there were like six or seven of them uh, volunteer battalion commanders elected to the Ukrainian Rada, the parliament. Now that's an issue because you are, you know, a military officer or national guard officer, and then what? You are on parallel a politician. How do we play this? You know, it's obviously not democratic. You know, you know, you're not allowed to do that. We're not some kind of a, you know, autocratic regime from God knows where. So obviously that was an issue. How do you transform these units? How do you ensure a transfer to another generation of leaders? That was one issue. Then, in case of Azov, Azov had a problem itself, and they they will admit it that they did have a lot of radicals in the ranks. You know, more radical than the ones that we 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 consider radical. So like you know this this shadowy Russian group called the Misanthropic Division, which was allegedly recruiting through Azov and the right sector, you know, that that was an issue. There were some uh, there were some ultra radicals, if you like, in the ranks. And as the unit was becoming state owned and some of its leaders had political ambition, you had to purge the ranks of such individuals. You had to gently ask them to go. And they were, let me put it this way. But at the same time, the ideological core stayed. It was some people went into different branches of life. The commander was a parliamentarian and then basically, you know, had to go. But that was also the basis for them of starting a political party. You know, suddenly the battalion, which was then the regiment, gave birth to a political party. You know, you know, it's kind of in the European setting, it's a bit weird. But I would say if we were to take it, if we were to take it into the what we would call global south, that wouldn't be so weird. But essentially mm-hmm. the fact that you had almost Someone who looked like a warlord, you know, go into politics and then start a political party, etc., 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 that was worrying. But, you know, as events turned out, you know, the worry wasn't fully justified, let's put it this way. Is this Andrei Beletsky that you're talking yeah. about? I mean, he, 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 you know, he basically leaves the regiment. He starts a political party, but it's only in 2016. So there is a bit of a period of kind of like interim when they don't know how to play it. And then they realized that, okay, we have to go for politics. We have to transform the volunteers, the veterans, the people who fundraised for us, the, you know, our families. And, you know, we, we have to merge this energy, uh, push it to, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in another, uh, in another, another direction. But, you know, six years later, they're not extremely successful politically. The, um, 
You know, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, in the West, we look at it through a very particular paradigm and and we say this is a far right uh, ideological military unit within, you know, the formal military structure of Ukraine. And that's problematic. Whereas when you talk in Ukraine, you say, well, you know, that's beside the point. You're missing the fact that this is a particularly effective fighting force and, and they're doing what the state needs to be done. Exactly. exactly. Patriotic. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it, um, it sort of points to this, this fact that they're not mutually exclusive. Um, yeah. You know, this identity can kind of be one and the same and, mm-hmm. and where you stand depends on where you sit and, and the perspective and, and kind of your own background and experience. Um, I wonder if we can sort of, um, you know, fast forward to February, you know, say February 23rd, the day before the invasion, or maybe a couple months before the invasion, when we knew that it was, you know, likely coming, uh, Western intelligence agencies were, 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 were publicly presenting indications uh-huh. that this was likely, we all saw the troop build up on the other side of the border. At, at that stage, did Ukraine, did this conflict, this, you know, pending conflict and, and, and in some senses ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, how did that feature kind of in the consciousness of kind of pan-European uh, far-right nationalist groups? You know, for groups like Azov, this was, they would be saying that they knew it all along, that this was coming, that the showdown, that need, there needs to be one more. They were kind of like, they were drilling themselves for this. You know, Azov runs a lot of paramilitary camps throughout 2021. It advertises its camps, you know, for, for people who are outside of the movement, outside of the battalion or regiment, outside of the structures. And they have a head start, right? Because they, they have a head start with the volunteers because they're saying, look, we've been training people, we, we, we're preparing, we told you so, ha, 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 you know, that kind of that kind of an approach. It is there. It is there amongst them. Uh, for groups, uh, for other groups on the Ukrainian far right, <clears throat> they are also of such an opinion. They're saying that the business with Russia simply is not finished. And we know that they're coming back. Therefore, we have to think ahead. We have to plan ahead. You know, plus Azov has this mantra of we need to put together the law on the territorial defense. You know, Ukraine only Ukraine only, only passes the law on territorial defense in early 2022. And the discussions about that go on for like seven years. And Azov thinking it could be in the prime you know, position to stage trainings, recruit people and, you know, basically run the process through its veterans in different bureaucracies around Ukraine. You know, they, they always were targeting the Ministry of, uh, of the Veteran Affairs. So they always had, you know, they always had some spots there. They were hoping that once this law is passed, they will play a role. They will obviously play a bigger role than their numbers suggest and their politics suggest. <clears throat> so you have, you know, you've seen them being, you know, kind of prepping themselves up for this in a way and saying, okay, we knew the Russians would be coming. We were saying we were unprepared. We were saying Ukraine was unprepared. And obviously at the same time, they were beaming the message to their European brethren saying, hey, you know, this is where the real conflict is. Stop your petty little squabbles. This is where the real deal is. You know, this is us, Europe versus Russia equals Asia. You know, the message has been there from 2014. They are amplifying it now, but the, the message has been there, you know, these are basically Asiatic hordes, orcs, I've heard these terms all before, and they were trying to, you know, present it to the Western friends saying, hey, you know, support us. But before February 24th, 2022, we have to be honest, quite a few of the nationalist or far right people in the West, they just didn't buy it. You know, there was no evidence. You know, what is Russia doing to you, really? You know, you just have some rebellions in the East. Plus, Vladimir Putin is a great guy because he's traditional, he's conservative, etc., etc., etc. Why would I support you? You're just, a, you know, you're some kind of an artificial nation stuck between, you know, Poland and Russia. You know, I've, I've, I've heard opinions like that. Suddenly, 24th of February comes in early 2022, and maybe not that everyone is convinced, you know, there's a new, there's a paradigm shift, but at least... Azov's narrative of like, look, we told you so, is now much more reliable. It's sellable. You can sell it. And especially after some of the decisions that Russia made, military decisions in early in the conflict, that for example, you know, the Eastern military district troops were attacking Kiev. And, you know, Eastern military district in Russian parlance, it's essentially people from like, you know, well, Eastern Asia, <laughs> if I could put it this way. So they look Asian and they attack Kiev. They are prisoners of war. And suddenly, you know, the Ukrainian military can present them and say, hey, this is what they're throwing at us. And by the way, some of them are actually Muslim. 
you know, you have the Chechens, you have the Kadyrov guys coming in. And this is the mantra for far-right groups in Ukraine, and not only, but also their supporters in the West saying, you know, you thought that Russia was your friend, and here is Russia under the red communist flag, throwing Muslims at white people in Ukraine, and actually using Asians, and, you know, conducting the massacres in Bucha, Irpin, places, places, places like that. So they use opportunities like that to simply give credence to the narrative. But believe me, the narrative has been there since 2014. You know, there are um, far right and uh, ultranationalist and white nationalist groups uh, throughout Europe, North America, and they sort of exist as this um, constellation. I, I don't know that you could call it a network necessarily because the ties uh-huh. aren't always uh-huh. very, very close, but there are ties between them. However, each one you know, maintains its own identity, its own, um, you know, its own ideology in many cases. How did those groups, those those far-right nationalist groups respond when Azov said, see, we told you so? You see, uh, it's tricky because I think you cannot change a person's mind overnight like that. And quite a few of these groups in the constellation, as you, I think it's a perfect word and a perfect description, Quite a few of these groups on the far right, European far right especially, are simply in Moscow's pocket. And when you're in Moscow's pocket, uh, you cannot just turn around and say, hey, I'm for Ukraine, essentially. But the members might be thinking that. Suddenly, you see, you know, you see a bit of like, you know, people voting with their feet. And suddenly, you know, German, French, far right, which had a big component of, of like, you know, pro-Russian uh, people there, they, they they suddenly they're all for Ukraine, or they, they they have doubts, or they're really scratching their heads. You know, some of them try to dance this dance macabre of like you know neither Russia nor Ukraine, like the Nordic resistance movement in in in, in Scandinavia saying I won't die for Putin, and I won't die for Zelensky, who's a Jew by the way. You know that kind of like it, it's really. But the, I know that the rank and file were basically saying no. I mean shut up. I, I mean we're all Ukraine now. Like you know it's it's. So you had leadership is one thing, and then the rank and file is the other. I think it gave the war and the way it was presented, it gave a shot in the arm, not just to the far-right groups in Ukraine, but basically to Ukraine as a whole. Because suddenly you had people who never supported Ukraine, really, who never took, you know, I, I mean, guys, I, I, I was there as a think tanker for years, trying to convince my Western colleagues that, hey, we need to take Russia seriously. And I, I don't want to say I was laughed at, because that would be an exaggeration, but, you know, people were scratching their heads and saying, oh, you're a Pole, you're just, you know, you're Russophobic and things like that. So imagine how a Ukrainian felt. And suddenly, all of this is gone. And obviously, in that sphere, and in that, you know, amongst that feeling, the far right will find new friends for itself. You know, that, that suddenly, you know, Casa Pound in Italy, which is more probably more pro-Russian, let's put it this way, but yet it somehow sends its members on a humanitarian mission to to, 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 to Kiev. You have French groups, which, you know, predominantly the far right in France was pro-Russian, and suddenly you have a huge section of it, like waking up and sending, you know, humanitarian stuff to, 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 uh, to Ukraine, to Ukraine as well. So it's been, it has not been so straightforward with organizations, you know, shifting uh, shifting alliances, but I think their members, and there is a kind of like a peer pressure and a bottom-up pressure on them to do things differently. And at the same time, the friends that Ukraine used to have before 2022, they reactivated themselves and they probably went in stronger with better ideas, more support, and simply on a wave of positive positive feeling towards them. So, you, you know, we, we have to remember about this as well. You know, if we if we think of warfare in sort of a classic Westphalian sense of citizens of a state wearing uniforms and meeting each other on the battlefield, this is anything but that. Because, exactly. You know, on the Russian side, you've you've obviously got private military companies like the Wagner Group. You've got mm-hmm. Chechen fighters, which you know, while Chechnya is part of Russia, these are certainly non-standard forces. They're they're paramilitary organization. Mm-hmm. You had Putin, you know, claiming they were going to accept something like uh, 16,000 foreign fighters from the from the Middle East, especially Syria. Exactly. You know, that obviously has not panned out, but you have had all of these sort of 
call them proxies uh, on the mm-hmm. Russian side. And then on the Ukrainian side, you also saw almost immediate appeals for foreigners who wanted to come and defend democracy on the front lines of the fight against the forces that would undermine yeah. it globally. Uh, you saw these calls and you saw them met. You saw people from uh, from from all over the world traveling to Ukraine and joining this. I don't know, you know, you maybe have a, a, a good estimate on the actual number, but it was, you know, this was not a small number of people that no. came. No. What were your expectations, you know, again, at the beginning of the conflict in terms of how much of that foreign influx would would represent far-right ideologies? And were those expectations met or, you know, did we see more or, or fewer foreign fighters from specifically from the far right than you anticipated? It's a, it's a good point. I think, you know, my initial thought was on February 27th when Ukraine announced the, the International Legion. My first thought was like, the conflict is going to be short anyway. Because, you know, remember, it's the first weekend Russians are advancing and you, you really, most of us, I mean, I probably was one of them. I wasn't very optimistic. Let's be honest about Ukrainian chances at the time. And I'm thinking, okay, that's a PR gesture for foreigners to come in but not many will actually be drawn to this because it's suicidal. You know, Russians are winning. You don't want to be a part of a losing cause. You know, you, you, it's right. like, let's think of something else for the future. You know, people were asking, you know, calling me and asking, you know, what about, you know, the guerrilla warfare in Ukraine? And I was scratching my head saying, I don't know. I honestly don't know. So that was my first. Then I saw, you know, the, the, the snowball rolling and it was a snowball. It was massive with, you know, these pictures of people hanging outside, uh, around outside embassies, trying to sign up, Ukraine embassies, people traveling through airports in Central Eastern Europe with gear, uh, mm-hmm. you know, heading to Ukraine. And it, 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 it was not, you know, it wasn't one person, you know, you weren't talking hundreds, but dozens, dozens of these guys. And you know, I was thinking, okay, this is big. This is probably going to be way, way bigger than I thought. But then fi- finally, the next reality check came after the Battle of Kiev when the Russians basically retreated around the uh, end of March. And suddenly quite a few of the guys who fought around Kiev, the capital, you know, the iconic place, the place everybody knew about, the media and the international media were there. And you suddenly turn around and some of these guys were actually going home. They were saying, I've done my shift. I've done my share. I've defended the capital. Now it's up to the Ukrainians. I, I have to go back home because I have a mortgage to pay. Like literally, I mean, I had people tell me that. Mm. I had volunteers telling me like, you know, I was asked to come over and help. So I did. Thank you. Bye. And suddenly, you know, the numbers were dwindling. You know, probably a big point was also the bombing of the Yavorif airbase in mid-March, where the foreign volunteers, because we should call them volunteers, really, as they were joining a state state unit, not some kind of a militia, not some kind of insurgency. Uh, the base was bombed and quite a few of the foreigners, basically, and I cannot blame them, got cold feet and decided to go back home or to shift into humanitarian humanitarian work, which is fine. But the numbers were, you know, were dwindling in a way. And one of the fighters, one of the volunteers told me himself that for him, it's a war of networked individuals now amongst the foreigners. So if you're networked, if you uh, talk to talk and walk to walk, if you made connections in Ukraine, if you made sure that you can go to the front line, if you're patient and you persevere, etc., 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 you will fight. But not so many have that. And, you know, lots of stories emerged when people were fed up. Where's my gun? Where's my gear? Why is it so messy? You know, and my answer is always, you know, dude, have you ever been there? Like, you know, have you ever studied history of Ukrainian warfare and things like that? If you're expecting, as you said, the Westphalian citizens in uniform, state providing for them and stuff like that, just you really got to the wrong place. And it's kind of, you know, you're starting from from a high and then it goes lower, lower, lower and lower. Recently, one French guy interviewed, he said that there's like 50 French fighting. And, you know, this is probably one of the bigger contingents. Uh, so if you say that they are smaller, okay, the American would be bigger, most probably. The British one might be bigger. But it's we're not talking thousands. I think we, we're talking thousands of initial volunteers, you know, writing the emails to the Ukrainian embassies, you know, tracking their stuff, offering help. Probably low thousands actually crossing the border into Ukraine, but then things got messy. And I wouldn't be completely surprised if you were, we were talking less than a thousand actually now on the front lines. Probably. Less than a, a thousand total foreign volunteers. Exactly. Now, if you see at the, you know, if you look at the numbers of the Ukrainian armed forces, including the territorial defense and stuff like that, this is this is way, 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 way less than a percent. 
you know, they can make a difference tactically somewhere here and there. But, you know, you're not talking international brigades. Let's be honest. That, that's not where we are. Where we are. Some people thought it would be like that. But I was skeptical from the get-go, but it's not happening. Now, you were asking about the extremists amongst them. Uh, that's a funny one, because whenever somebody says Ukraine and, and war, every you know, quite a few people immediately think of extremists. Now, this mobilization proves that it's not really the case. 2014 was, a, you know, kind of like a weird war for weird people from abroad. And really, you know, far right and far left guys trekked there. And, you know, there was no groundswell of kind of like positive opinion for Ukraine because uh, people really thought, felt, okay, this is separatism. This maybe is a civil war. I shouldn't get involved. This is messy, etc., etc., etc. And really, the ones who went on either side, they were really weird. Let's put it this way. You know, th- therefore, you know, the subtitle of my forthcoming book is "Brown Red Cocktail," because essentially these guys were coming from these kind of ideological colors, if you like. Now, eight years later, this is a straightforward, you know, good v- versus evil. And it's a slightly different gig as far as these guys are concerned. You know, they themselves, even the extremists in the ranks, they say that these guys are concerned citizens of the world, you know, the ones who arrived from, from, from abroad. You cannot just categorize them all as extremists or, or far right, far left or, or whatever. They're not radical in any you know, way, shape or form. But some of the veterans of 2014 are still there. Yeah, they fought. They are coming back. Some of the networks that were channeling fighters eight years ago, yeah, they are reactivated. Some of the players, the influencers, the people who, who are talking up the conflict and this interpretation of the conflict with Putin as the kind of like, you know, pro-Muslim, oligarchic, kleptocratic Soviet, Soviet leader, they are back at it. And definitely you see individuals here and there, uh, you know, misanthropic division member from France got killed. You know, I thought, you know, we felt that this organization was long gone and suddenly a member Get skilled. There are individuals from, you know, you, you could name any country in Europe, essentially, and there would be one or two or five from each somewhere there in some unit. But do they consist, do they come together to form some kind of a militia or are they actually in the ranks of those groups that we discussed earlier, right sector or as of? They're not. This is the funny one, that they are really in the ranks of somebody else. And it's all very messy. It's all very diffuse. And for that reason, maybe it's not so worrying in this sense that they do not coalesce together. They do not come together in this sense. I mentioned uh, an article that you had written for uh, the CTC Sentinel. Uh, the title was A Trickle, Not a Flood, which essentially made, you know, in, in more detail than, than we probably have the space for here, talking specifically about the numbers and and how many foreign fighters came, how, you know, how, to what extent extremism was represented within the ranks of, of those numbers. I'm curious, you know, I think you, you know, like most of us that were watching in late February and early March, you know, even even when it looked like, you know, Ukraine's defenders were putting up a heroic fight, we sort of anticipated that eventually the weight of numbers and resources would weigh in Russia's favor and that this conflict wouldn't go on. As we now are, you know, what, yeah. five months into the conflict, more than five months into the conflict now, there is the the prospect that it will go on and just sort of, you know, may become this kind of grinding conflict. Do you expect that, you know, you saw that initial surge of, of foreign volunteers and then it kind of dropped mm-hmm. back? Um, do you expect that trend to continue or, or you know, is the longer it goes on, is that more likely to, you know, if a year from now this is still going on, are there going to be some young people who are new to the far right movement in some country in Europe deciding, hey, this is my opportunity to go carry a weapon and, and get some experience and burnish my credentials? I think... If it becomes just like the, after 2014, after 2015, really, the war became a kind of almost like a trench warfare thing in Donbass. And it hardly attracted anybody because, you know, you don't want to sit in a trench. It's no, no fun. There is no maneuver. There is no glory to be had. And on the basis of that, I can anticipate that probably if it morphs into something similar, even more deadly, then I wouldn't expect many individuals from the West, including the extremists, to actually go to Ukraine because, hey, it's in Russian, it's far, uh, you can get killed. You know, I love these stories that I went there, I thought, you know, I would have a chance and I was bombed by Russian jets. 
And you know, my 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 response was like, "What did you expect? You know, it's not it's you're not fighting ISIS in Syria. You're fighting quite a large army that has all these weapons systems, and it's deploying them against you." So. There's a lot of naivete around it, but I would say uh, I wouldn't expect that many to come over. I think only if suddenly, let's play this scenario, Russia begins to crumble and let's say Ukrainians are advancing somewhere, I don't know, taking over Donetsk and, and things like that, which which I, you know, I'd love them to do. Uh, that's a glory parade and that is something that you want to be associated with. You know, the foreign volunteers don't want to die. They want to go back. Uh, they want to fight, they're determined, and many of them are just, you know, seeking, they're spoiling for a fight. But at the same time, they're not suicidal. You know, we're not talking Afghan Arabs here. You know, let's 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 put that to the let's put that to the side. It's a slightly it's a slightly different gig. So I think for now, I would say the number is going to stay at, at 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 its current level. I don't think many will go. Some will rotate back home to rest. I don't know, earn some money, and might might be coming back. But I would say it's probably going to stay at this level. And when they do go back to their home countries, uh, particularly the those with, you know, extremist ideological mm-hmm. sort of feelings, um, what, what from a defense and security perspective, you know, what are the sort of, what should policymakers be worried about? Is there, is there the risk, you know, this was the big fear, right? Uh, you mentioned the Afghan Arabs that, that uh, yeah. you know, at, after the Soviet Union was kicked out of Afghanistan, they all went back to their home countries and you saw the emergence of, of, of a network of terrorist organizations across the broader Middle East and North Africa region. Um, we were concerned about that with foreign fighters who traveled to Iraq from 2003 onward, going back to their home countries. Is there, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we should equate the two by any means. And this sure. kind of gets to my earlier point that, you know, there's only so much that kind of lessons or perspectives on one, on one case, uh, you know, can be applied to another one, but exactly. is there a concern that the experience, um, and even the, the, the credentials really that, that this gives to somebody who went there and can show themselves to have fought, is there a concern, uh, that policymakers should be, should be aware of? in in their home countries probably john i would say we have to the first thing is we have to identify them so um these individuals were going there and allegedly they were signing contracts with the ukrainian military and they had to present themselves to a special at a special place in Lviv, western ukraine now probably not all of them did uh so Probably we need to start asking questions as to you know who's there on that on that very end. At the same time, looking into our files and our situation, like who left, who who do we know left the country to kind of really assess how big, you know how how large the phenomenon is. And I think it's right to ask Ukraine these Ukraine these questions because obviously if we're helping them with arms, if we're helping them with you know aid and stuff like that, that's a minor issue. Like tell us which citizens of, 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 of you know, my country actually went there, I'd love to know. Uh, and let's see if, if, you know, some of them are actually, uh, some of them are actually on the list of, of, you know, persons of interest because of their extremist beliefs. Now, I think the main push should be to make sure that when these guys come back, regardless of their ideological stances, that they're looked after. I don't want to use the word as veterans, but to a large, but to a large degree, yes that they just know what to do with their lives. You would know way better than I do uh, how this is run, how this should be run. But I think we need to look at them not as potential threats, but essentially a burden on, on the social services, a burden on the you know social situation in a given place, especially if there was a group of them coming from one place or, or one town, one city and stuff like that. We should analyze it along these uh, along these lines. Obviously, mindful of the fact that we might be hearing from Ukrainians. Okay, here's a guy, and then we're we were suspicious of him ourselves. So I think we need to start this conversation with Ukraine to make sure I mean, who was there, what they did. Because if they just crossed into Ukraine, worked with some humanitarian effort, delivered medical supplies, well, well, that's it basically. You know that 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 that's the, that that's as far as we can go. But I think we first need to determine how many were there now. Is this a concern? Of course it is, but you know I'll, I'll I'll put it on the table like this. 2014, quite a few of these brown red guys went there, and I don't think you've heard of a terrorist attack staged by these guys afterwards. You know, and I'm building up a data set of these guys here at CREX. 
And yes, they've gone to some dodgy places, if you like. They, you know, whenever there were the yellow vest protests in, in France, oh, the veterans of 2014 were there, you know, throwing rocks and then making sure, you know, showing the muscles, so to speak. But if this is as far as they go, maybe we have to live with the, with the, with the uh, assumption that we shouldn't exaggerate it that much, that they might be an issue politically or socially, but not so much as a security threat immediate. Because, you know, one of the guys who went to fight in Donbass in 2014, a French guy whom I interviewed and fought on the side of the so-called separatists, he told me himself, like, we are not going into terrorism. I know I do not stand a chance. You know, the state, the repressive state, will go after me and it will tear me apart. I'm not suicidal. I'm not like ISIS. So, you know, we probably have to play, play on this feeling that you are not like ISIS, therefore you will not attack us, you know, physically. Maybe channel that into, I don't know, political activity or social activity, or, which is, of course, you know, as long as it's legal. So, you know, we might be in for a few surprises, and quite a few of them, they dream of the careers as private military contractors. So, you know, they do it to prop up their CVs. And I think we have to realize that, you know, some of these guys that I see there in Ukraine with extremist thoughts, uh, they are probably former soldiers. So they probably weren't vetted rightly by their host country in the first place. They got there, and then they left the military and they went into Ukraine. And they we're kind of blaming Ukraine for that. Not really. No, 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 no. You know, when your country, you know, US and Germany talk a lot about extremists in the ranks, I guess we need to look at all the, all the militaries in the West, and we'll probably find such people there. Not too many, but there's quite a few. And it's it's a comparable danger, in a way. It's a potentiality. It's a, it's a long shot. Uh, so maybe let's try to manage it so that we don't make it worse. I think this is the most um, sort of pertinent question, right, from at least from an external perspective, is, okay, what happens next when they come home? And, you know, I think that you make a really good point that how many of these guys who went and fought in Donbass have committed terrorist attacks since then? It's a pretty compelling argument to say, you know, maybe we don't have to worry about this risk the way that we might we might think we need to. That becomes a more difficult argument if there's one example of it, which could be an outlier, which yeah, could be exactly. a complete outlier. Exactly. But it makes it a lot more difficult to say, yes, there is this one. But if we look at the whole, we we you know we have to have this qualitative understanding of motivations and, and mm -hmm. things like this because it strikes me, you know, when I was reading your CTC article, uh, you know, numbers absent context mean very little. We need to contextualize them. And you know, you you mentioned that um, I think you said in mid March 2022, German authorities. Uh, acknowledged that there were 27 mm -hmm. right-wing extremists that who had either left to go to Ukraine or had credibly committed to going to Ukraine. And it brought me back to, you know, more than a decade ago, I, I, I was doing some work looking at um, radicalization and the threat of homegrown terrorism. And, and I spent some time in Hamburg with uh, some, some people from the Verfassung shoots, the, uh, the state security service, yeah. the Hamburg state security service, and we sort of took a tour of what they called the scene, uh, which was this essentially a line of mosques. There were something like 39 mosques in Hamburg mm -hmm. that had been mm -hmm. tied to some sort of radical activity or radicalization. And in, I believe it was 2009, there was a group called the Travel Group uh, that all left. Mm -hmm. they, had, they had met at one mosque called the Taiba Mosque in, in Hamburg. And they had left and traveled to the borderlands of Afghanistan and Pakistan, eventually linked up with the IMU, uh, the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, who became the sort of the place oh, for Germans yeah. and, and some other uh, some other nationalities mm -hmm. to sort of get to if they wanted to fight mm -hmm. there. But this, you know, if you look back at German media from the time, they were called the travel group. Uh, you know, and they, they talked a lot about the travel group and the risks that, that this presented, because what if they return? That was 11 people. We're talking now about German authorities and 27 people. And so we were more worried about 11 people. And that's because there is this qualitative understanding of the motivations and, mm -hmm. and ideological underpinnings and the, and the sort of universality of those of objectives that need to be uh, sort of accounted for. Is it your sense that security officials, authorities in the states from where some of these extremists have traveled to Ukraine, however many they may be, is it your sense that they do appreciate the importance of that qualitative understanding? Yes, I think they do. But at the same time, uh, in the policy circles, there's quite a lot of smoke, if you like. Um, you know, these attempts to, 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 to 
I don't know, designators of as a terrorist FTO, right, the foreign terrorist organization. Well, that that was tricky. Now, actually, Russia is designating Azov as a terrorist entity. So look how things are changing. Um, you know, it's it's as if part of our industry, if you like, moved. And maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but at least I have a long track record of that. But maybe maybe essentially. Uh, essentially, you have you have part of our industry moving away from okay, the jihadists are done. You know, Ayman al Zawahiri was just killed, right? Uh, so now we need to move to something else. And what's our what's our something else? And oh, 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 okay, the far right militants. And I think you know, far right. And I'm saying this very conscious of the fact that Graham Macklin, who is an authority on that, sits not far away from me. Um, he would tell you himself that it used to be way more militant <laughs> in the past, whereas now. The boys, and it's mostly boys, they quite a lot, you know, they quite often do politics and or metapolitics, if you like. Uh, so it's a completely different challenge. Or as my boss at C-Rex here, Tore Bjorgo, used to say, where, when it was violent skinheads, it was a completely different thing in the 80s. Now it's a completely different entity. Yet we still view them as this, you know, jackpot, uh, bomber jacket Nazis who are plotting to kill hundreds of people. Yeah, some of them do. But not not all of them really. So I'm not sure. We're sometimes you know we're probably unleashing the wrong end of the <laughs> of the admin admin muscle against them, if you like. Uh, I would say. So I want to kind of um, probably close out with kind of a future looking mm-hmm. uh, question. You know, broadly speaking, this this subject of far right extremism uh, mobilization to you know to to conflicts abroad uh uh what did the sort of what are the big questions that people like yourself will be asking and and other scholars for you know from an academic perspective to try to wrap our heads around this problem set if we can call it that what are the questions that that they should be asking trying to answer and what is the sort of data that we should be focusing on to sort of you know, hone us in on the right answers to those questions. You know, for me, the main the main one that I'm looking at, and and that's 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 what I do at CREX, is to basically track as many as possible of the for, foreigners who are in the ranks on the Ukrainian side. Uh, you, we have to look at you know there was this concept of the of the uh, career foreign fighters. So let's look at the veterans of 2014. How many returned? To see if there are patterns of their you know behavior and involvement. Is it is it something that happens often? For me, quite a big point is the fact that these organizations that you asked about, John, at the beginning, so it's all right sector and stuff like that, these organizations are mostly on state payroll now. They operate through the National Guard. They operate through the Special Forces. They operate through the Ministry of Defense. What happens to them once this is over? How do they react politically? What happens to the members? The fact that they have grown... Does it mean that they've indoctrinated the new members? My impression is that they haven't, and that we're probably worried too much, but okay. Let's see what happens to these guys. So if Azov can now turn around and say we have that many battalions, that many regiments, etc., 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 of the movement, does it mean that they're all hardcore Ukrainian nationalists? Probably not, but let's observe that. You know, How will they transform themselves into political forces once this is over? And I think the key question for us, to what extent will they be able to attract foreigners as political allies? You know, they've been doing that between 14 and 22. And we kind of quite often did overblew this, thinking that everyone who went to Kiev and shook hands with them was a potential foreign fighter. That wasn't the case. But let's see how, you know, do they have more people? Are they more trustworthy? Who are the new friends? Who are the new allies? And to what extent will they actually try to, you know, or successfully try to change their militancy or military success into political success. And I think lastly, the Russian point, John, we cannot forget that. What happens to and with the Russian far-right milieu after this? The milieu which has been basically locked up in chains and, you know, and and, 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 and used and abused by Putin's regime. To what extent is it a viable anti-Putin force? I mean, we will be looking for friends in Russia, right? I'm not saying we should be friends with Russian far right, but we should be looking them as a potential spoiler in Russia. Are they a spoiler? Can they be a spoiler? Or are they completely shackled? Are they completely, you know, uh, on the payroll and then completely destroyed, destroyed, destroyed by Russia? What are their connections 
you know, they've been cut off from quite a few of the connections, even logistically, they cannot travel, no one can travel and see them, or it's more, much more hard, you know, much harder. How are they going to behave? You know, this is, these are the things that will probably, we will have to, we will have to, we will have to look at, at, at in the, in the coming years. Well, Casper, I want to thank you again for, uh, for joining me, you know, just like we highlighted the fact that Azov can be called, you know, a group of far right extremists carrying guns. They can also be called, you know, an effective and patriotic group of fighters loyal to the state. And neither one of those things is necessarily, you know, more true true than the other, depending depending on your perspective. In the same way, I think this, this broad subject um, has been characterized in a lot of different ways. Um, you've seen a lot of sort of narratives trying to make sense of all of this. And, and that's why I think that your, you know, your research background, uh, your experience with this uh, provides a perspective that I think is really important. Uh, and I think listeners will enjoy the opportunity to, uh, to have heard from you. So, so thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take just a second wherever you listen to give it a rating or leave a review. That really is a great way to help new listeners interested in the types of topics we explore on the podcast to find us. Thanks again.